0: There are two ways that you can view history. Number one, you can look at history as a series of events that man has done. Or you can look at history as a series of events that God has done through men. You can view it as history or you can view it as His story. The story of God through the lives of men and women of faith from times past. Oftentimes Christians are sort of criticized because We're trying to make relevant an ancient document. They say, now, come on, these stories are 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years old. This is the 1990s. And it's true, times have changed. Cultures have also changed. For the most part, the Bible was a primitive agrarian society. We live in a techno-urban society. Fashion has changed. Robes and sandals are now out. Different fashions are now in. But God has not changed. He remains the same in every period of history and still responds to faith. And if there's one overriding lesson of the entire chapter of Hebrews is that God, no matter what time period it is, will still respond to the faith of any man or any woman. Anyone who places their trust in him, God will respond to that. And so we are called to live by faith. As Peter Marshall once said, O Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith lest ulcers become our badge of disbelief. These were men and women who faced incredible odds against them. But we read about them, and in verse 32, where we pick up this morning, after highlighting some of the champions of faith of the Old Testament, this is a summary paragraph. He brings it all together, and he says, "'Time would fail me to tell you of everybody else. "'And what more shall I say?' he continues." For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. And then we're going to stop there and save the next part of it, the rest of it, for next week. I remember one time we had a production of some sort on one night of the week here at the church. It was a play, and a lot of people participating in getting this production really honed down. And at the end, though I never do this much, I usually just say, hey, we just want to thank everybody for participating. I started mentioning the people involved. We want to thank so-and-so and so-and-so, and -and and I'm trying in my mind to remember all of the people who had part in this production, only to be sort of rebuked at the end by two people because I failed to mention their names. I think uh, the author, knowing that could be the case, he just says, look, time would fail me. And here's a list of all of them, and here's a few others, and just in case I left anybody out, he mentions prophets in general, and then he says still others in a general kind of a way. There were many heroes of faith that he did not record in this chapter. However, I don't think they really cared. I don't somehow picture the people that he missed up in heaven sulking. They didn't mention my name in that chapter. I don't think they really cared even while they were on earth. What's important is that God recognized them, whether men recognized them or not. God recognized them and honored them for their faith. By the way, this chapter is a continual chapter, I believe. Somebody suggested that names can be inserted into this in every period of history. There are still men and women of faith who, because they know their are God, are doing exploits for the Lord by faith, as God honors that faith. I want to underscore that. Faith is the key issue of this chapter. God honors a person for their faith, not because they're some great special individual with great talent, it's that faith that God honors them for. I think there's going to be a lot of people surprised who think they deserve something from God when they don't get it. There's a lot of people who think they deserve heaven. God owes it to them. After all, they're such a wonderful person. There's a story of three people who died at the same time and they stood before St. Peter at the gates of heaven. And First was a California lawyer. And he said, I want to enter, please. Peter said, well, not so fast. You have to pass one little test. Spell God. Well, he said, it's easy, G-O-D. Peter said, great, come on in. The next was an oilman from Texas, and he said, I'd like to enter, please. And Peter said, not so fast. You have to pass one little test. Spell God. And the oilman said, that's a cinch, G-O-D. He said, that's right, come on in. The next was a young, attractive female stockbroker from New York City and she said, uh, I'd like to enter, please, move aside. And uh, Peter said, no, well, no, no, wait, 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 wait. You have to pass the test. She said, oh, come on, I've had it tough all my life. Because I have a woman, I've been pushed down. I had to fight for every promotion. And I made less money than all of my male coworkers just because I'm a woman. And I have a boss who's a male chauvinist pig. And I deserve this. I've worked hard. Peter said, just one simple test. Spell Czechoslovakia. Not because of what we've done, but because we have trusted in the Lord that God honors us, God honors our faith. I'd like to look at verse 32 through the beginning of verse 35 in basically two sections so we can commit it to memory. Various people and victorious possibilities. First of all, you notice that there's another list of people that are given. But not much is said about them, just their names are given. It's a mixed bag. And if you look at those names in verse 32, some of them are young, some are old. Uh, There are men, and then also women are mentioned, as in verse 35. There are official people. In other words, king is mentioned, prophets are mentioned. There are unofficial people mentioned, commoners. A farmer is mentioned in this verse, a shepherd, soldiers, and also Jephthah, the son of a harlot. There's also three periods of history mentioned in that singular verse. The period of the judges before there was a king in Israel is summed up by the names Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. The monarchy, another time period after the time of the judges, is also mentioned with David. And then the prophets are mentioned, Samuel and the prophets, which is another time period afterwards. The thrust is this. There were different people with various backgrounds, they had little in common with each other except for one thing, faith. The thing that puts them all together in this chapter is not that they were Israelites because not all of them were. It's not because they attained to some educational level because not all of them did. It's not because they were prophets in an official position or a king because not all of them were. The one thing that tied them together was their faith in the Lord. Now let's apply apply that to us. There is so much that naturally at birth separates us from one another. We are different. We have different backgrounds. Um, We have different tastes. We have different heredity. We have different uh, economic and educational backgrounds. Um, The Declaration of Independence says all men were created equal, but that doesn't mean we're all alike. We are different. Remember that old saying, birds of a feather flock together? That is so true, isn't it? Even in the church, think about it. Whether we like it or not, we do this all the time. We gravitate toward people who are most like us, and we shun willingly or not willingly people who are less like us. Singles are together with singles. Married couples with married couples. The older folks get together with the older folks. And we make enough segregations because we want to be around people who are most like we are. But the one thing that makes us all in common together is our second birth, not our first birth. Our first birth separates us from one another. Our second birth, faith in Jesus Christ, brings us all together to worship the Lord. Did you know that the only place in the Roman Empire where people could go without the distinction of class or slave or free or ethnic was the church? Tertullian mentioned that when the church began to grow in the Roman Empire that spies were sent into the local assemblies to see why they grew so much. Spies came back and they noted that they were so different from one another within the church but that they loved each other so deeply. That though there were some slave owners and slaves in the same room, rich, poor, male, female, different ethnic groups, that they were all together as one. And as Paul the Apostle said, there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. One of the most important things you and I can do is to recognize and enjoy the variety in the body of Christ. Don't try to stamp it out. Don't come up with the mold that everybody has to fit. Enjoy the variety. Uh, look around just for a moment. Look around you. Look at the different people in this room. Look at the different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different hairdos. Um, Some short, some long, some strange, uh, uh, some without any. Different tastes, different talents and preferences, but all together in the same body. God stuck us together. God is a God of variety. And one of the things I love about the Lord is that He loves variety. How boring it would be if we were all the same. I'm glad that you all don't have men, blue pinstripe suits with a yellow tie and a white shirt. That you have the freedom to dress as you like. It'd be boring if all of the terrain in the United States were the same. What if all of America was one big wheat field or the panhandle? I mean, that's pretty in and of itself, but too much of it gets pretty boring. If all of the seasons were one season instead of four different seasons, it would be boring. If we were all the same, how boring it would be. Within the church. I'll never forget a couple of years ago on an Easter Sunday, one of the greatest sights I ever saw. Sitting up front was a man, an older man, in a dark suit and a nice tie, and next to him was a teenager with leather and strange colored hair sticking straight up. Both had a Bible. You could only find that in the church. Their faith in Jesus Christ bridged any of the things that separated them. Steve Taylor, several years ago, wrote a song. It's a mocking kind of a song, a parody song called I Want to Be a Clone. And he was talking about the tendency we have in the church to see people saved and then stick them in some kind of a mold. You've got to talk like me and dress like me and carry the same Bible I carry. And just instead we should enjoy the variety. But in a song, I won't give you the whole song, but a couple of the stanzas go, I thought I had gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough. But now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord, into my heart, they said, that's the place to start, but now you've got to play the part. I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. My church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much. I rock the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. And then he closes it, sort of Allah Bob Dylan. Everybody must get cloned at the end of the song. His point is well taken. Be yourself. Be yourself. Add to the body of Christ what God has given to you. Be who you are. Let us enjoy the difference of your life, your special contribution that only you can give to the body of Christ. As Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are differences of gifts within the body, but it's the same Lord. There are differences of operations of the gifts because they're different kinds of people, but it's the same Lord who works all and in all. I have even found that people with the exact same gift operated differently, and I'm glad. You could have four different people with the same gift and they will operate it in a different capacity. Take the gift of evangelism. Billy Graham has an incredible capacity being known as the person who singularly preached the gospel to more people than any other human in history. And he can get into a stadium and not be intimidated. He can ask pointed questions, Are you lonely? And he can preach a simple gospel and people will will respond. But get another person in front of a stadium full of people and they'll just shake at the knees. In fact, a recent survey found that one of men's greatest fears is to speak in public, even above the fear of death for many people. It was the fear to be in front of a crowd and do what I'm doing right now. To speak to a group of people. So there's people who can do it. There's other people who say, I don't want to get in front of a stadium. But they're great door to door. There's some people who don't mind walking up to a door, though they know but no one in the neighborhood, knock on the door, come inside and share the gospel. There's still others who wouldn't stand in a stadium or go from door to door. They'll knock on the door and then say, dear Jesus, don't let anybody be home. Please get me out of this place. But they're there by constraint. They ought not to be there. Because maybe that person feels more comfortable one-on-one in a natural work setting where they can just ad-lib, share their faith person-to-person. They're good at it. They love it. They have a gift of evangelism. Still others can write letters and through their words create a thirst on part of the other person as they hear the gospel. There's differences, but those differences are necessary to accomplish God's work. Somebody once imagined the Carpenter's Tools having a conference together. They were talking. And Brother Hammer presided over the meeting. And as Brother Hammer presided over the meeting, everybody objected, saying, he's too noisy. Makes too much noise, that Hammer. And Brother Hammer said, well, if I have to leave, then Brother Screw has to leave too, because we always have to turn him around and around to get him to do anything. Brother Screw said, OK, if I have to leave, however, Brother Plain has to leave, because he's always just working on the surface. He never really gets down below the surface. And Brother Plain said, well, If you don't want me in this meeting, there's others that have to go. Like Brother Rule, who's always trying to measure other people, thinking he's better than anyone else. And Brother Rule spoke up and said, Okay, if you want me to leave, Brother Sandpaper also has to leave. He's always rubbing people the wrong way, don't you know? Get rid of him. At that strategic point in walked Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter himself, who went to work making a pulpit from which he could preach the gospel to the crowds in Galilee. And he used the hammer and the screw and the plane and the sandpaper and the rule. And at the end of the meeting, the saw spoke up and remarked, Brethren, I observe that in all things we are all co-workers together with Christ. There's people who don't do things your way, but God put them next to you for some purpose. Enjoy the variety. Now let's read on and we see the victorious possibilities of this group of people who, through faith, They subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. I want to just take some of the names in verse 32. Since the names are given, then what happened through them is given in a summary paragraph. Look at them individually and let's apply them to our lives. Gideon is mentioned, first of all. Gideon was a farmer. Here's the interesting thing. He was a farmer. He was a frightened farmer who knew nothing about battles. And God calls on him to lead one. Isn't that great? He had no experience at all. God calls him to be the leader of the army. He's frightened because we see that when the angel of the Lord comes to call Gideon, instead of threshing the wheat on the threshing floor at the top of the mountain, he's threshing it at the wine press at the bottom of the valley where nobody can see him because he's afraid. The angel of the Lord comes to him and begins to call him. And the angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Probably Gideon was looking around. (laughs) Moi? I'm the mighty man of valor? Yes, you're going to lead Israel's army. Gideon took 32,000 men at the foot of Mount Gilboa. Over across the valley were the Midianites. And it says their army was more in number than the locusts of the field. He was outnumbered. 32,000, they had many, many more. So God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you've got too many men for me to get the victory. And I'm sure he thought that was a joke. Gideon probably laughed. That's good, Lord. That's funny. Humor's always good in a battle. God, how come you're not laughing? You've got too many men, Gideon. I want you to thin out the ranks. Don't you know I can save by many or by few? This is what I want you to do. Tell your men, anybody who's fearful and afraid, go home. Gideon probably thought oh. These are stout-hearted soldiers. They're not afraid. Okay, I'll do it anyway. Anybody who's uh, afraid, uh, go home. 22,000 made a beeline home. (laughs) He had 10,000 men left. He was shaking in his boots. God came to him a second time and said, You still got too many. I want you to thin the ranks out some more, Gideon. Eventually, 300 men were chosen soldiers. From 32,000 to 300 against an innumerable army. God says, now, Gideon, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take torches and light them and jugs and bang on them and run at the other army yelling. That's your battle plan. That takes mere stupidity or mere faith in the Lord. He knew his orders were from God. After a fleece, he went out to battle. And sure enough, God routed the army and gave Israel a beautiful victory. One has only to look at actually a modern counterpart of that because a lot of people would say, oh, that didn't really happen. Look at some of the events of the Six-Day War and the 73 War in Israel and you'll see some of the same kinds of odds and they have interesting stories even to this day of how the Israelis still believe that God preserved them and gave them the territory. That's another story, however. You may, like Gideon, feel outnumbered. You might be in a work situation. You're the only Christian there and you've complained to the Lord a lot about this lately. God, I'm the only one. I'm outnumbered. I've got cynics and antagonists. Listen, I remember. I remember what it was like when I worked at one hospital in Orange County where I was the brunt of everybody's jokes. I was made fun of constantly. But I was also there by God's design. I never depended upon the Lord more in a work situation than there. And number two, God used me as a light. Light shines in the darkest places. Our eyes will always be focused on one of four things Spiritually, in a spiritual sense. Circumstances, other people, ourselves, or the Lord. Those first three will end in despair eventually. You'll drift. There's no solid anchor because people and circumstances shift. So do you. But God doesn't change. And so Gideon decided, though outnumbered, he, was, he would fix his eyes firmly upon the Lord, even though human odds were against him. By the way, God doesn't care about human odds Martin Luther used to say, with God, one is a majority. In fact, God often does more with less. Though Jesus had multitudes of people who followed him, he had 12 disciples who were wholly committed to him, and with those he changed the world. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of a person whose heart is turned toward him. God is looking for people, though outnumbered, to use, like Gideon. Next on the list, Barak. Now, we usually remember Barak, we mentioned him last week, as being kind of a wimp because he wanted Deborah, the prophetess, to go into battle with him. The story goes something like this. Sisera and Jabin attacked Israel from the north, and Deborah sends to Barak and says, Get your men and fight against the invading armies, but only take 10,000 men from two tribes of Israel, leave the other 10 out probably to stack the odds against them so that it would be very evident that God gained the victory. He said, I'll go to battle if you go with me. Now It could be, A, that he was a wimp, or B, he was a spiritual man, and he wanted her spiritual influence more than just the armies of Israel with him. She was a prophetess. She was a woman of God. And he wanted the word of God in the battle, not just 10,000 men. So he goes out to battle, battle, gains a victory. And uh, the Bible says that uh, Deborah was the one responsible for personally killing Sisera, the commander of the army. Perhaps just so Beric wouldn't be able to go home and say, yeah, let me tell you what I did. He'd go home and they would say, tell us about the battle. Who killed the commander? A woman did. (laughs) Take the edge off of his bragging, perhaps. Could it be that some of you men are in the same situation or need to be to humble yourself and admit your weakness in front of your wife, or a woman of God who is strong, perhaps. You think, oh, I can't admit my weakness. I'm a man. I've got to be a man of God. I can't admit that to a woman. There's an old myth of creation that God says that when God first created Adam upon the earth, He looked him over and said, I think I can do better than that. So He created a woman. <laughs> God made them for good reasons, men. And perhaps God wants us to humble ourselves before a friend or our mother or wife, and say, Honey, I need your spiritual input and your strength at this point. Samson is next on the list. Uh, most, of him, most of us remember him with disdain. He is um, sort of like the Old Testament version of the Terminator. Great physical strength, but little moral strength. He was a failure. He was self-centered. And he fell many times. However, what most of us forget is that Samson in the end humbled himself because of the circumstances, and he was willing to die for his faith. Though he fell, he eventually got back up. He humbled himself. He was willing to go to death and let the house come in upon him, as well as the Philistines. We fall, we fail. We must never forget. It's not over yet. Some of you this morning are caught in the grips of failure. You feel miserable. You think, man, I've let God down. I've tried to serve him and I failed. I fell on my face. You've got to understand that it's not over yet. It's not falling. It's getting back up. That's also very important. Remember, Peter denied the Lord and he went out and he wept bitterly. But in the end, Jesus restored him and God used him. Mark Twain used to say, Every person is a moon and has a dark side that he will not reveal to anyone. That might be true. You might have a dark side. God knows it. God sees you thoroughly and plainly this morning. He knows your failures. He knows your weaknesses. And he still will accept you. You might be surprised, but God doesn't expect perfection. You might be disappointed with yourself only because you have trusted in yourself. And now you say, I failed. I've let myself down. It doesn't take God by surprise. The Bible says if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. God knows your heart. God knows that you want to serve Him, that you want to love Him. Even if you're a failure, God will pick you up again. There is a bumper sticker that I've seen a bunch. It says Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. I don't like bumper stickers for the most part. I'm not a slogan kind of a person when it comes to putting a sticker on a car. However, that's an interesting one. I kind of like it. Uh, I don't like it when Christians slap it on their cars to give them an excuse to go 90 miles an hour. Just forgiven as they go by. (laughs) But it is true. We are not perfect, nor should we attempt to give off an air of perfection. And when we fail, we admit it. Lord, I've fallen. I've wept bitterly like Peter. Pick me up again. Next on the list is Jephthah. When I hear his name, I think of rejection. His mother was a harlot. When he grew up, his family kicked him out of the house. He was despised by the nation. But God raised him up to defeat the Ammonites. He became a leader, a judge of Israel. After a rejected upbringing, he became a man of valor. I think it was Alexander McLaren, of whom this story is told, when he was candidating to become a pastor in the church in Scotland, He gave a sermon, fumbled over himself, and he was rejected by the pulpit committee. It was one of the saddest, lowest points of his life. He wired to his father a single word. It said, rejected. His father wired him back with these words, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Jephthah, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Perhaps you've been rejected by your peers, by your friends you're accepted in heaven if you trust in him. Then we come to David, and I agree with the author, time would fail to talk about all of his life, but his faith began when he was a kid. He was a shepherd. He looked at the stars. He writes about them in the Psalms. He watched sheep. He trusted God that God would use his trusty little slingshot to drive the enemies away, bears and lions and so forth. His trust in God, because he began young, developed, and when he was a young man, just a little guy, just growing up, he comes to the camp of Israel when they're fighting the Philistines and everybody's cowering because Goliath and the other Philistines are touting their remarks back to the children of Israel. David comes in and he goes, I'm not scared. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine think he is, the guy with the big mouth? And he is not intimidated to stand up to Goliath. He stood up to him. And he defeated him. In fact, he said, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll cut your head off your shoulders, you uncircumcised Philistine. He began in faith. He grew up in faith. To Israel, Goliath was a looming giant. To David, his perspective is he was an overgrown midget. You see David go out to battle and you say, Poor little boy! Until you hear him talk to this giant. And you think, Ooh, poor giant. It's all a matter of perspective, really. I heard the three people went to the Grand Canyon, an artist, a minister, and a cowboy. And they all looked it over. And They looked inside that deep chasm, and the artist said, Oh, what a beautiful scene to paint. The minister said, What a beautiful testimony of God's creation. And the cowboy looked down and said, What a terrible place to lose a cow. <laughs> it just depends who you are and depends on your perspective. All of David's brothers were cowering. David said, I'm not afraid of this guy. This guy defied my God, and I'm convinced that God wants to use me to deliver the children of Israel out of his hand. Yes, he had a powerful enemy. Yes, you have a powerful enemy. The devil would love to set up traps at every turn for you. He knows your weaknesses. He devises schemes to cause you to be weak and to fail. Spiritual warfare is a reality. You have a powerful enemy, but you have a powerful commanding officer. You're in his rank. And instead of giving the devil so much credit, the devil did this, the devil did that. Hey, where's the Lord in this? Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. You come in weakness, but you come in faith. Lord, I turn the situation over to you. That's the history of David. And finally, we come to Samuel. Samuel was not a warrior. He was a priest and a prophet. But he did fight a battle. His battle was idolatry and immorality among the people of Israel. He didn't stand up to the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Midianites and the Out and the Turn Out the Lights, all the ites of the Old Testament. His enemies were his own peer group. He had to stand up in midst of people who knew him, God's people, and rebuke them for their immorality. I think that's harder. I think that's a tougher battle to stand up among your peers and speak the truth When your peers are saying, Don't preach at us. Preach to them. They need it more than we do. Sammy was tempted to compromise, but he didn't. He fought that battle with faith. The next couple verses is just a summation, various activities. Um, It says they subdue kingdoms. We already saw this with Jephthah, David, and Gideon. Just a note, by the way. Does God still work among nations and kingdoms and kings today? Oh, you betcha. The Bible says the king's hand... Or the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the courses of water, he turns it wherever he wants to go. God is still involved in the affairs of this world. I don't always understand them, but he's involved. You can be involved in world affairs. That doesn't mean you're to go out and take a sword up and go fight some holy jihad. But you should be involved in praying for the leaders of different countries around the world, especially your own country. And I want to make this point very clear. You know, it's easy to criticize leadership. It's easy to criticize the present administration. I think they've set themselves up and given a lot of ammunition. It's easy to criticize, but how often do you pray for them? Do you open your mouth more in criticism or open your mouth more before God in prayer? Oh, God, put your spirit upon these men, these women. Give them a measure of your spirit. Give them wisdom. Guide their hearts. Put them in your hands. Have your way. Open up their hearts and pray for them. It says they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, and notice they stopped the mouths of lions. Who does that refer to? Daniel, chapter 6. He's thrown in a den of lions. He doesn't rip their jaws open, but God tames that aggressive nature of the beast. And Daniel, in chapter 6, declares, My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth. As a side note, I don't think you'll ever understand the part of the ministry of angels in your life till you get to heaven. I think you might be surprised. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says, angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those of us who are heirs of salvation. If you could look back, the times you were that close to a tragedy, but God in his restraining power sent an angel to hold it back. Some of you, by the way you live, have two, three, four, maybe half a dozen angels following you around at all times. <laughs> I often think that when I get up in the morning, the angels go, Oh, he's up! Get some extra troops. He's on that motorcycle again. He's off to Somalia this week or Iraq. But God ministers to us. Next, they quenched the violence of fire. Who does that refer to? Remember those three Hebrew children in the first part of the book of Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. They refused to bow. He said, fine, if you don't bow to my image, I'll throw you in the fire. They said, fine, God will deliver us. Even if he doesn't and we burn, I don't care, we won't bow. They were thrown into the fire. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke when they got out. And the enemy said, didn't we throw three men in that fire? How come I see four men and the one looks like the Son of God? There's an important truth there. God doesn't deliver you from every fire. He just promises to be there with you. Is there proof of that? Yep. Look at verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again. But go on. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. God won't deliver you from, but He'll be with you in it. Isaiah 43, God says, When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. They won't overflow you. Then, finally, they escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Yet, as we just saw, many others didn't have that experience. Now, the untrained eye would look over chapter 11, and they would say, I don't quite get it. What's the big deal about these men and women? I've examined their lives. They failed. Some of them were out and out rebellious, weak people who gave into their weaknesses, who gave into their sin, gave into their flesh. Why does God make such a big deal about them? Because of their faith. They tenaciously clung to God, believing that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God honors their faith. Times have changed. These are the 1990s. God hasn't changed, he still honors faith. Have you changed? We should ask ourselves, where are the modern-day Abrahams and Davids and Jephthahs and Gideons and Baraks? The author says, time would fail me, but there's still time to put your name on that list. And your name should be on that list. You might come like Jephthah, I have nothing much to offer. Or like Gideon, I'm weak and I'm the weakest in Israel. But I trust you, Lord. Dwight al Moody, when he was a boy, heard a sermon. And the man said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one person totally devoted to him. When Moody heard that sermon, he said, By God's grace, I will be that man. How about you? Instead of fumbling for your keys and saying, Let's go home, honey. How about right now saying, I will be that man, that woman, that God will use to reach my world for the gospel. Father, we commit our lives to you. You are so creative, being able to use a variety of instruments For your work, common, simple, those who are official, those who are weak, and common. That principle sticks out in our hearts, that you seem to do the most with the least, that you might get the glory for it in the end. And with that, we surrender our lives to you this morning. Take us, Lord. Make Abraham's, Sarah's, Jephthah's, Gideon's, Barak's, David's, Enix, women like we read about in verse 35, out of us, may our lives count more than just earning money for the bread table or for the home. May we reach our sphere of influence and make an impact. A variety of people, but with victorious possibilities. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.